Thanks for checking out the weekly sermon from Church of the Resurrection. We pray that God will use this message to speak to you and help you grow in your faith journey. We'd like to invite you to join us next week at one of our services, whether in live worship online at court.org live or in person at one of our locations in the Kansas City area. Church of the Resurrection is one church in multiple locations. To learn more about our service times and ministries, please visit core.org. We hope you enjoy this message. What would lead a first century rabbi to travel thousands of miles by sea and by land, to be beaten, imprisoned, and ultimately beheaded for his faith? It was a call, a call to turn the world upside down. This is the story of the Apostle Paul, whose writings continue to shape the lives of one-third of the world's population, a man second only to Jesus in his impact and influence on the Christian faith, and whose witness defines what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. I am so excited to be back in the pulpit today and to be focusing on the life of the Apostle Paul in these sermons for the next few weeks. I spent three and a half weeks in Turkey and Greece in October uh, teaching people about the life of Paul in the places where Paul lived. It was just so awesome. And, uh, and I'm excited to be sharing with you a bit of what we experienced there. I do want to begin. Some of you were very concerned and sending notes and prayers for us when I was on the first trip. So I had two trips, one with 450 people from across the country, the second one with 280 people from resurrection. And on that first trip, we were going to Israel, Egypt, and then Greece and Turkey. And on our way to Israel, so it was October 7th in the morning, I was getting ready to stand up and lecture on the life of Jesus and uh, what they should look for and be prepared for when they're walking in the Holy Land in his footsteps. Uh, we felt the ship come to a stop. And, uh, and I turned to the leader of our uh, tour company and he shared with me what was happening in Israel. At that very moment, the rockets were, were being launched from Hamas into Israel. And I thought I'd just show you, people have asked me like, where were you when this happened? So we had left uh, Athens the day before and we'd been sailing down in this area and we came to a stop somewhere around here. And, uh, and then just to get a little closer view, uh, we were planning on going that day, we would have landed in Haifa. And then the next day, we would, have, uh, we would have toured that day here, and then we would have come down here to Ashdod and brought the ship down there, and we would have been there for two nights. Here's Ashdod. Here is uh, the Gaza Strip right here. And Ashkelon is where the rockets began to land. And so we're stopped out here and trying to figure out uh, are we going to go ahead and visit or not going to visit? We didn't really have a clear picture yet, but by noon, the captain of the ship came on and said, you know, we've been diverted to Cyprus. And, uh, and then we were going to Egypt uh, after that. And there was a shooting in Alexandria at the port where we were going. And they said, we're not going to go there. So basically the first five or six days of the trip were scrapped. And we ended up spending all of our time focused on the Apostle Paul. So that's where we were. We were not in harm's way. The cruise line was very careful and the tour company was very careful to keep us, you know, at a safe distance. What our people felt was, of course, disappointment that they didn't get to go see these places, but they were primarily concerned for the Israelis who were suffering at that time, and then for what was likely to happen in Gaza to the Palestinians. And so I just want you to know, thank you for your prayers. And we were, we were safe, but we're really glad to be home and uh, had a wonderful time despite that, even though, you know, the entire time on the ship, we were praying 
for the Israelis and the Palestinians. All right. So with that as a little bit of background, I want to walk us through today. Actually, here's where we're going over the next few weeks. Today, we're going to talk about Paul's early life and uh, next and, and up to and just after his conversion. Next week, we're going to talk about Paul's missionary journeys. And that's when I'm going to take you to the places we visited in the Holy Land. We've got film footage we shot there, and you're going to have a chance to see all these cool places that I took everyone else to in person. And then the last week, we're going to talk about Paul's the opposition to Paul's ministry, his suffering, and his death. But I want to begin with Paul's life story. And I want to remind you, uh, as you heard in that opening video, there is no human being aside from Jesus who's had a greater impact on the Christian faith than Paul. Paul was the principal theologian of the early church. He was the one who felt the call from Christ to take the gospel from a small little-known sect within Judaism out to the Greco-Roman world. And he starts churches across the Roman world. He lays the foundation for Christianity to become what it is today, the faith of about 31% of the world's population. That happened because of Paul. His letters are uh, about half of the books of the New Testament. 13 of the, the, the 27 books of the New Testament are Paul's letters that he wrote to the churches that he started or to the leaders of those churches. These words, his words, have been read by more people around the world than any other author in the history of humankind. And they've had a huge impact on not only the Christian faith, but on Western civilization. And so studying his life, his ministry, his words, and by the way, next spring during Lent, we're gonna focus on the message of Paul. And we're gonna look at the six or seven most important messages from the apostle Paul. But right now, we're gonna focus three weeks on Paul's life. So I want, to sh- I want to begin by sharing with you a little bit of what Paul says. So we get to learn his life from his own words. And if you put together Acts 22.3, 21.39, and Philippians 3.5, we hear this. I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of an important city, circumcised on the eighth day, a member of the people of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Let me just show you where he was born so we have an idea of that. Um, he was born, so this is the Mediterranean Sea. Here's uh, Israel down in this area here. And he's born, this is all Turkey over here today. It was Anatolia or uh, Asia Minor in Paul's day. And he's born here in Tarsus, Tarsus. Tarsus is about 10 miles to the Mediterranean Sea and about 10 miles to this range of mountains, the Taurus Mountains that cover the entire southern portion of Turkey. And so he's on a major trade route. It was a major city, it was a major trade route. And I'll just show you, the Cilician Gates were part of that trade route. And that's what you see here. It's a six-lane highway that's taking you from the south by the Mediterranean into those, you know, through that mountain range and across Turkey or what was Asia Minor at the time and all the way ultimately to Rome. And so this major trade route, the roads where the modern highways are, that's where the ancient roadways are. So if you if you look often, you'll see if you're on a highway, just off to the side, you'll see ruins from the ancient Roman roadways. Same pathways. It's the quickest way from point A to point B. And that's where Paul lived. He lived on this trade route. It was a free city. Uh, they didn't have to pay Roman taxes or certain Roman taxes. And uh, and again, it was a major, it was some probably the sixth or fifth largest city in the Roman Empire, about 200,000 people at the time, a center of learning, Greek philosophy. Paul grows up there, part of the Jewish diaspora, a very small Jewish community, well, moderate-sized Jewish community, but he's surrounded by Gentiles. And he grows up knowing the Gentile world. He understands the way the Gentiles thinks. think. He, he learns, he grows up learning Greek as his primary language alongside Hebrew, but he speaks Greek most of the time. That enables him to write letters to churches in the language that everybody uses 
used in the Roman Empire. Allows him to preach in every city to Gentiles, not just to the Jewish people. He is, uh, he is, he is trained as a little boy. He's growing up in the education, you know, the finest education that he could get there in that town. Uh, and he's uh, learning, again, the Greek philosophers, uh, the, the, uh, you know, the, the, the kinds of things that you would learn if you were part of the Gentile world. But he's also learning as a, as a Jewish boy, he's learning all, you know, he's learning the law and all of the things that are important in Judaism. So he's living there. His parents are Roman citizens. Maybe they purchased their Roman citizenship. Only 10% of the entire uh, Roman empire were citizens, but he was a citizen. That came with certain benefits, a certain esteem and prestige, but also certain protections for him. So, so he is, uh, he's grown up a Roman citizen. His parents likely made tents for a living. This is a, a big business in that area. Certain kinds of, uh, of goat skins that are, that are very highly sought after for tents. And that's what his parents seem to do because this is what he does to pay his way when he's, you know, preaching the gospel and he doesn't have an offering to take every week. He's, you know, making tents. He's a tent maker. All right, so this is Paul and a little bit of his background. And uh, and if you were to visit Tarsus, the town where he's from, and I've tried to visit there several times and it wasn't safe, today it's safe to go there again. But in that south, central, southeastern Turkey, um, you would find that there's very few remains from Paul's time. I'll just show you a couple of things you would see there. Uh, there is a an ancient Roman road that runs through the heart of the city. But the thing is, the city was built on top of the ancient ruins, which is why you'd have to tear down buildings to find more of Paul's world. But this uh, Roman roadway from his time, this is a well that purports to be have been from Paul's time, and they actually call it Paul's Well, remembering that he was from Tarsus. All right, so at the age of 13, I believe, he was sent to go to school at a boarding school in Jerusalem. So at 13, a Jewish boy becomes a man. Today, there's bar mitzvah ceremonies. In Paul's day, there wasn't bar mitzvah, but it was still the time in which uh, boys became men. And so at this point, he's going off to school. He's going to study and going off to school. And as he's going off to school, he is, uh, he is going to go study under the, one of the leading rabbis of his time a part of the Jewish ruling council of the Sanhedrin. His name was Gamaliel. He was the grandson of Hillel the Elder, one of the great uh, rabbinical leaders of all time. And so Gamaliel is going to be his teacher. It's like going to Harvard or Yale or Princeton. This is what he had a chance to do. Some think his parents moved there with him. Some think they sent him there to live in boarding school. And probably for about six years, what would have been you know, his, his you know, college and seminary, uh, learning first by assisting the rabbi and then listening to him and learning from him, studying the law. He became an expert in the law. If he hadn't been already as a boy for, you know, the age of 13, by the time he finished working with Gamaliel, he was an expert in the law. So he says this in Acts 22, 3, I was brought up in this city at, in Jerusalem at the feet of Gamaliel, educated strictly according to our ancestral law, being zealous for God, just as all of you are today. So he's again, describing himself here. All right, when we were in uh, Greece and Turkey, uh, somebody came up to me and said, you know, I've noticed that almost all the images of Paul look pretty similar. He's almost always shown as bald and, and you know, he, he's not particularly attractive. And, you know, how do we know what he looked like? Well, we don't know what he looked like, but in the second century, in the 100s, there was a document that was written called The Acts of Paul and Thecla. Thecla was a woman who followed Paul and through him followed Jesus, but uh, a very heroic woman. And, uh, and these stories were written about uh, Paul and Thecla. And in the midst of them, there is a description, a brief description from a man named Onesephorus of what Paul looked like. Now, you know, this is a second century book. It was written 100 years after Paul died, or not quite 100, but pro- probably something like that. But uh, maybe it holds on to some traditions that were actually true about what he looked like. Because instead of describing Paul as a really handsome and, you know, strong man, actually paint a kind of unflattering picture of him. <clears throat> so I wanted you to hear this. I think it's kind of fun to see. This is, uh, this is again, from the Acts of Paul and Thecla. Uh, so he was a man of small stature with a bald head, crooked legs, 
bulging eyes, eyebrows that met. He had a unibrow and a large crooked nose, but he was full of kindness. Sometimes he seemed like a man, sometimes like an angel. That statement, sometimes he looked like a man, sometimes like an angel, is the title for today's sermon. And I, I want us to think about that because when we see Paul, sometimes we see the man, a mere mortal, <clears throat> sometimes a man who fails and, and falls short of what we might expect. And then, and especially in his writings, you have a chance to see his full humanity on display. But then at other times, he writes, talks, preaches, seems like, looks like an angel. And I'm going to suggest to you that that's true for all of us. That's part of what I love about Paul is we see his humanity and we see the Holy Spirit working in and through him in profound ways. Now, uh, it's interesting, he's not afraid to let people know about his weaknesses and to tell what critics say about him. So in 2 Corinthians 10.10, he quotes what his critics say about him. Not many of us are willing to do that. Here's what he says. Uh, In essence, in his Amazon reviews, this is what he gets. His letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible. (laughs) Can you imagine that? Paul's willing to say, that's what they say about me. And the thing was, people weren't drawn to Paul because he was handsome you know, really great looking. It was because of his convictions and his courage that they were drawn to him and his ability to reason. And as he reasoned his way through the scriptures and as he preached with conviction and as he, as he demonstrated courage in the face of suffering, people were drawn to hear the message that he preached. That's what they came to see. This week, uh, People Magazine's releasing its list of the sexiest men alive. Paul would have never been on that list. But if you talk about the most courageous the people who had the greatest convictions, the people who were driven to serve God, he would be on that list. Right after Jesus, he'd be number two. All right, so the writer of 2 Peter also mentions, now, by the way, he, you know, Paul writes some of the most beautiful words in all of scripture, read, more, read by more people than any other author in the history of humankind. Jesus didn't write anything. Paul wrote things. And as we read his writings, though, we recognize that some of them are difficult to understand. Some of them are things where we look at and go, Paul, did you mean to say that? Or is this perhaps telling us more about the time in which you live than what God's timeless will is for people's lives? And so 2 Peter, the author of 2 Peter, at the end of the book, 2 Peter 3.16, talks about his beloved brother, Paul, our beloved brother, Paul. And he says, there are some things in Paul's writings that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction. I find that fascinating because... There are things that are hard to understand in Paul. I have a bachelor and master's degree in theology and biblical studies, and there are certain things he writes, and I'm like, okay, Paul, what exactly did you mean by that word? And sometimes he writes in run-on sentences, you know, and so his grammar is not always, you know, it's pretty good, but it's not always great. There are times you just go, what exactly did you mean here? And I'll just say it's okay when you read Paul's letters if sometimes you don't understand it all. The writer of 2 Peter also felt that way. But most of what you read, you're going to understand, and they're beautiful. Again, we're going to study those in Lent this coming year. But some of the things that he writes are things that divide churches to this present day. Evangelical churches right now are being divided about women in ministry because of what Paul says. Mainline churches divided about about gay and lesbian people and what God's will is and how the church will be in ministry with gay and lesbian people. With some saying, yes, they're they're loved by God and, and, and fully included. And others saying, well, they're included, but. Well, they draw the but from Paul. And when it comes to slavery, and for the longest time, people quoted Paul when they were supporting slavery, or you know how you deal with leaders and really unjust leaders, what do you do towards them? And Paul says some things, and you go, really, did you mean that, Paul? Because that leader is going to put you to death one day. Did you really mean what you said there? And so there are places where we wrestle with Paul, but most of what we read in Paul, we read and say, we hear the voice 
of God, or maybe we might even say the voice of an angel when we're listening or we're reading Paul's letters. And so we find his humanity on display and we find God speaking through him like the voice of an angel. Now I wanna suggest that's true of all of us at times. We all, at times at our best, God speaks through us. We become messengers of God. That's what the word angel means. We become messengers of God. And at the same time, there are places where we see our mere mortality, our mere humanity. And sometimes like Paul, we struggle. We, we know the good we wanna do and we don't do it. And we find the things that we don't wanna do, we end up doing. Paul says that in Romans 7 about himself. So we're all at times mere mortals or even less. And at times we share the voice or the appearance or the messages of the angels. All right, so the Acts of the Apostles devotes 28, of its 28 chapters, devotes about 14 chapters to the Apostle Paul. Actually, a little more than that. He shows up in about uh, 17 or 18 chapters all the way through the Acts of the Apostles. But it's in chapter seven that he breaks into the scene. So in chapter seven, and if you have your Bible, you might wanna turn to the end of Acts chapter seven. And there we find that Stephen, who's one of the early Christians, is being martyred. He's about to be martyred. He's been arrested. The religious leaders are unhappy with him, with the things that he's preaching. They're upset that these Christians are continuing. They weren't weren't even called Christians yet. These followers of Jesus or followers of of the way are continuing to preach about this, this Jesus who was crucified who they claimed was raised from the dead. And this was a bit of an embarrassment for some of the religious leaders who had opposed Jesus. And now they're saying that he's raised from the dead and he's the Messiah. And so, uh, so Stephen is one of those. He's a deacon in the church. They arrest him. And, uh, and after he's done giving his testimony, they decide to kill him. And we find that there is one religious leader there who's giving approval for his death. And his name was Saul. Again, the Hebrew name, Uh, for Saul. The Latin name or Roman name was Paul. He was Saul and he was giving approval for the death of Stephen. They come and they lay their coats. Those who are going to stone him to death, lay their coats at Paul's feet. And then they stone Stephen to death. And and then after that, we read in Acts chapter eight, verses one through three, that day, a severe persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout the countryside of Judea and Samaria. Devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church by entering house after house, dragging off both men and women. He committed them to prison. Why was he arresting believers? Why was he arresting these followers of Jesus to silence them? But it wasn't just to silence them and to suppress the Christian movement, I don't think. I think he was blinded by his own ambition. He's 21 or maybe 22 years old at this point. And, and you know, Christ has died and risen from the grave within the last year. Uh, Paul has, you know, lived in Jerusalem while Jesus is there, even though he appears not to have met him personally at any point. And so Paul's trying to make a name for himself. He's just graduated from seminary. What's he going to do? He's going to volunteer for a job that nobody else wants. And he's going to tell the religious leaders, you know what, I'll solve the problem for you. Just let me have it. You know, give me the authority to do it. And I'm going to get these these folks quiet. I'm going to solve the problem. And I think he was blinded by his own ambition in this which always reminds me when I think about that, how often many of the rest of us are blinded by our own ambition as well. Sometimes willing to compromise on things that we know are true. I mean, what part of of dragging away Jewish people who are followers of Jesus and having them put to death looks like loving your neighbors, you love yourself, right? But right now he was just focused on his own convictions and his own ambition. And sometimes we can believe something so true, we don't even take the time to question it. And in our conviction that something is true, and our own sin and sinfulness and our ambition, we can end up doing terrible things that are totally antithetical to our faith. That's true of us and it was true of Paul. Now I see Paul's, uh, Paul's ambition in Galatians 1.14 where he writes, I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my peers because I was much more militant about the traditions of my ancestors. 
or some translations say zealous, but the idea is the same. Much more militant or, or zealous about these traditions, is passionate about them, and willing to inflict them upon other people. Now, twice in Acts, Paul tells us about the work that he did in persecuting Christians. He's giving his testimony, but he's describing who he used to be, not who he is now, but who he used to be. And listen to this. He says, I really thought, this is Acts 26, I really thought that I ought to oppose the name of Jesus the Nazarene in every way possible. And that's exactly what I did in Jerusalem. I locked up many of God's holy people in prison under the authority of the chief priests. When they were condemned to death, I voted against them. In one synagogue after another, indeed in all the synagogues, I would often torture them, compelling them to slander God. My rage bordered on the hysterical as I pursued them even to foreign cities. Now, here's a man who's trained in the Hebrew law, who wants to be a rabbi, a teacher, perhaps a, you know, a leader of the Jewish ruling council one day, and he got it so wrong. I mean, even if, you, even if Jesus wasn't the Messiah, he got it wrong in what he was doing. Blinded by ambition, blinded by conviction, blinded by his, by his own anger at these people. And when I was studying this and thinking about this passage At the same time I was doing that, I was watching the news stories this week, and I was watching the body cam footage of these 20-somethings, guys the same age as Paul, who were living, you know, who were in Gaza and managed to break through the walls. And at the direction of Hamas, they rode their motorcycles through the openings in the walls. Maybe maybe you saw these the same footage. I don't encourage you to watch it, but but you know, and they've got their machine guns. And as they're as they're driving by, I'm hearing, you know, the leaders cheering them on, Allahu Akbar. God is the greatest. And I thought, these guys are hearing these words, God is the greatest. They must be believing these words and they're gonna go out and they're gonna commit horrible atrocities against human beings. Even if you considered someone your enemy, you wouldn't do the things that they did. There was something evil and broken that took over in their hearts and minds, darkened by sin and brokenness. And they go out and they, and they do terrible things. And I, I was reading the, the cell phone uh, transcript from, I guess, uh, a call that was intercepted. And this young man who'd been doing this calls out to his parents in Gaza and says, you know, I, I killed 10 Jews with my own hands. Please be proud of me. Please be proud of me. He's pleading with them. This young kid, I assume, is starting to realize what he's done and, and, and maybe not as proud and, and desperately wanting his parents to be proud of this horrible thing that he did. God is the greatest. God is the greatest. Now, I want to make sure that we're clear. There's a distinction between Hamas and average Palestinians. They're not the same. And, and, so, and I have Palestinian friends. The Christians in the Holy Land, almost all of them are Palestinians. I, I visited with a Palestinian couple, friends of mine, last week, and talking about you know, the grief they felt for the Israelis and what had happened there. And at the same time, the grief they felt for their own people as they were suffering the consequences of what the Hamas leadership had, had planned and done, these horrible things. And now their friends who were dying in Gaza... I mean, it's just a mess and it's brokenness and it's ambition and it's rage and it's sin. It's darkness in our own hearts and lives. And and lest we think this is only Hamas and it's not anybody else, let me just remind you, this is the history of humankind is that we have a chance to give in to that impulse, that dark impulse in our lives to allow ambition and sin to be mixed together along with rage and hate and end up doing things we never should have done, which starts in, in Genesis chapter four, when Cain takes his brother Abel out into the field jealous of his brother and feeling like God is showing favor to his brother, not to him. He bashes his brother, brother's brains in with a rock. I mean, like, how does that happen? This is the opening story. By the time you get to Genesis chapter six, God is grieving that he'd ever made human beings because they're perpetually violent all the time, which has been the story of our lives as a species. 
And, and so when we look across time, you know, we find it's not just Hamas who does these kind of things. I, I think about the Germans who, you know, on their belt buckles, both in World War I and then in World War II, the Nazis, imagine this, they had on their, the audacity to put on their belt, belt buckles, God is with us, right? Which in Hebrew is Emmanuel, right? God is with us. I think about the KKK who spread bigotry and lynched people, burning crosses and did this all as they were going to church, you know, on Sunday morning. And during the week, cloaking themselves in bedsheets. Or I think of Martin Luther. This last week was Reformation Day. Halloween is Reformation Day. It's when Martin Luther posted the 95 theses on the doors of the Wittenberg Castle Church in Germany. And it was then that he launched the Protestant Reformation. Didn't even mean to at first, but launched the Protestant Reformation. Considered a saint by so many people until they start reading the rest of his story. Now, God used him in powerful ways. And at the same time, you get to the end of his life. That was 1517. You get to 1543, I think it was. So 26 years later, and just before he dies, he's writing this document, this tractate. It's uh, on the Jews and their lies and offended that they hadn't you know, been converted by his message. He, he tells the leaders in his region, he says, you know, here's his advice, his sincere advice, he says. First, set fire to their synagogues or schools and bury and cover with dirt whatever will not burn so that no one will ever see a stone or cinder of them. This is to be done in honor of our Lord. And the advice gets even worse from there. I mean, it was Hitler who picked up on this, you know, Luther being the most famous German ever lived up to that point and saying, hey, this is what Father Martin said, giving cover for what he was about to do. I want to remind you as we see a rise in anti-Semitism and at the same time Islamophobia, that, you know, what we find happening in our own lives is the ability to be overcome by the darkness. Right, we, we, we see, and I'm not worried that you're going to do this. I just want to make sure that we're clear that we are not, that our Jewish friends are our brothers and sisters. We have one God that we share together and we are human beings, the Muslims that you know, human beings, they're children of God. They're our brothers and sisters. We may not believe the same things, but we, we pray and we worship and, and at our best, we're striving to live this high ideals, even in Islam. There's no room for us to hate, no room for us to assume the worst of everybody around us. But that's what happens sometimes with small-minded people. I think about the landlord who killed this six-year-old boy who was a tenant in his building along with, along with an attempt to kill his mother. He'd been listening to talk radio who built up fears in him about Palestinians and, and this family was a Palestinian family. How can this happen in America? Or, or the young man at Cornell, who the student who ends up posting threats that he wants to do to Jewish people in, at Cornell, what happened to the Jews at the hands of Hamas in Israel? How could somebody post something like that? What is wrong with us as human beings? Now, I'm not really worried that you're going to give into that. I just want to name it today. I mean, there's this brokenness. The world is messed up because we're messed up. We were created in the image of God. And at the same time, there's something broken in us. And we give in either to the light or to the darkness, right? And we have to decide that. And so Paul's giving into the darkness and doesn't even realize and thinks he's doing the right thing when he's doing the wrong and completely horrible thing. But as, as we think about this, I'm not worried about you doing those kinds of things. I'm worried about what we say about our neighbors who are Republicans or Democrats, liberals or conservatives, the people who are running for office. We have local elections going on this coming week. And what are we saying about them? Are we taking the time to understand what they actually believe and what they're actually advocating for? And it's fair game to criticize that. Or are we assuming the worst and bad-mouthing them? Are we character assassinating? 
because that's so easy to do. Next year, big election. What are we going to do when we have conversations about the political parties or about the candidates? What are we going to say about people we've never really met, but we make a lot of assumptions about them, and then we just crucify them with our words? And it's interesting, later on, Paul would, Paul would write, after he was converted, he would write, let no in- unclean words come out of your mouth, but only what is useful for building others up as there is need, so that your words might give grace to those who hear. But that's not what we do. Paul warns against gossiping, backbiting. And I think about something Ronald Reagan said, you know, whether you loved Ronald Reagan or you hated him, these words are just deeply true. He says, too often character assassination has replaced debate in principle here in Washington. Destroy someone's reputation and you don't have to talk about what he stands for. That's hard to avoid doing this. And I've struggled with it too. And I know probably you have as well. But as we think about candidates, to be careful what we say, we can, we can debate the policies. We can debate the ideas. We should do that. We have to do that. But we have to look at human beings and we have to treat them in the way that Christ has called us to treat them. We've got to live this kind of gospel. All right. So with that in mind, I want to tell you about Saul's conversion. So we turn to Acts chapter 9 and we read these words. Saul was still spewing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest seeking letters to the synagogues in Damascus. If he found persons who belonged to the way, whether men or women, those letters would authorize him to take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. During the journey as he approached Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven encircled him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice asking him, Saul, Saul, why are you harassing me? And Saul asked, who are you, Lord? And the Lord replied, I am Jesus, whom you are harassing. Now get up and enter the city. You'll be told what you must do. For three days, he was blind and neither ate nor drank anything. It's a very powerful story of his conversion. And I want us to learn a lesson from it, or maybe a couple of them. So Paul was blinded by the light. He sat in darkness for three days. It doesn't say that he was converted instantaneously. He was totally confused. He was totally up into this blindly ambitious man, appropriately when he meets Christ, is blinded physically. And in the dark, he doesn't eat, he doesn't drink. I'm sure that he's, he's troubled, he's confused. Everything that he'd been doing to serve God, he now learned was the wrong thing to be doing. And as he sat there in that room, you have to just imagine what he's feeling, what he's experiencing. Now, he's in uh, Judas's house on Straight Street, and, and God at the same time speaks to a man named Ananias in the town. And he says to Ananias, who was a follower of Christ, and Paul actually had letters authorizing him to arrest Ananias and take him back to Jerusalem, maybe to be killed. Uh, I mean, all of those who are Christians in the synagogue there. And so God speaks to Ananias. Jesus says to him, Ananias, I need you to go find Saul. He's in Judas's house on Straight Street. I need you to go find him. And, and Ananias says, Lord, he's come here to hurt the believers. He's come here to arrest us. You want me to go find him? He says, yes, I need you to have courage to go find him because I have a plan for his life. I have something for him to do and I need you to go and I need you to show him the way. I need you to baptize him. I need you to draw him to me, help him to make the decision and the step to actually surrender to me. Now I'm adding to the words that you find in the book of Acts, but that in essence was what was happening. And you have to imagine what Ananias felt like. He must've been terrified about this man who wanted to kill him, but he worked up the courage to be able to go to Straight Street to find Judas's house And there, this is what we read. He says, Brother Saul, the Lord sent me, Jesus, who appeared to you on the way as you were coming here. He sent me so that you could see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Instantly, flakes fell from Saul's eyes. Some say scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and from this time on, he ate and he regained his strength. Saul was converted. He wasn't converted when he first saw the light. He was converted when Ananias came and explained the way 
and invited him to be baptized. He was converted. His life was radically changed. The man who was persecuting Christians became its greatest advocate, the greatest advocate of Christianity. He began to be the preacher of the gospel. He was willing to die for his faith and no longer driven by blind ambition and rage and hate. He learned to be driven by love, a radical converse, uh, conversion that happened to the Apostle Paul. I was watching a, a short film this week. It was nominated for an Oscar, a 30-minute film, a documentary. And as I was watching it, I thought, this is what happened to Paul. A, a little different story, but I, I want to share it with you. So uh, it's a 30-minute film. It, uh, it is focused on a man named Mark McKinney. Mark McKinney was a Marine for 25 years. And in the Marine Corps, he served in some of the toughest places to serve. He served in Afghanistan, in Iraq. He, he himself had killed many, many people. Uh, he had been taught, you know, just look at them like they were the paper in target practice and, and, and don't see them as people, see them only as, as targets to be shot at. But he said 25 years of that left him with post-traumatic stress disorder. He finally retired from the Marines and he came back to the United States and he married a woman who had a little girl and so adopted that little girl and, and they moved to Muncie, Indiana. He said, we came to Muncie, Indiana. And when we arrived there, he said, I found, I think maybe this was his childhood home. He said, you know, I found that there were Muslims there. Now I'd just been killing Muslims in these other countries. There were Muslims that were there. And he said, it made me so angry. I couldn't believe it. And then there was a, a little Muslim boy who was going to school with my daughter. And, and I was so mad that they were sitting across the desk from each other. And, and I imagined all the things they wanted to do. I thought they want to kill us and they want to destroy us and destroy America. And he said, all these things are going through my mind. And I finally came to the realization that I had to do something about it. I was willing to fight for our country and kill for our country, that I had to do that for our country again. And he, and he described how he hatched a plan to detonate a bomb in the front of the Islamic Center in Muncie, Indiana, with the hope of killing 200 Muslims. And he began to, you know, he, he said, I, I knew how to make a bomb, and, and I, I began, you know, putting, all, putting forward these plans. And, and he said, I decided I, I should go to the Islamic Center and actually, you know, scope it out and see what was there and, and see the people who were there. And, and he said, I walked in, and, and, and the people in the film, it describes the people who met him that day. They, they, were, uh, they were a little nervous when he came in because he, he acted like something was off. There was something off about him. And one of those Islamic men came up to him, a, a physician in, uh, in Muncie, and he just wrapped his arms around him. And he just held him. And, uh, and then there was another who did the same. And, and that first week he left and he was very, very confused. And he came back the next week to the Islamic Center. And then the next week, and, and slowly his life began to be changed. Here's the trailer for the film. Take a look. When I first saw him, I remember saying, there's something not right with this guy. It was a little scary. He seemed to be like a redneck. He was walking kind of fast, his head was kind of down, pacing back and forth. I was hoping for at least 200 or more dead, injured. You know, he thought he was doing the right thing. He was at war with Muslims in his mind. When I tell people this story, they tell me that they don't believe me. My dad calls my mom the Mother Teresa of the Muslim community, and it's definitely true. I invited him over for dinner. I couldn't help it except to make him feel from my heart that he is welcome. I could never in a million years repay this community what they've given me.
I've often said to people that it's not our superior theological arguments that win people to Christ. It is our capacity and willingness to love selflessly, sacrificially, even to love our enemy, even to love the one that we're afraid of. And that transforms people. It leads them to say, I wonder what you believe and why. And it leads them to want to be a part of a community. And that's exactly what happened with Mac. He went there to kill 200 Muslims. And he ended up, he ended up becoming one. He was converted by their love. As Christians, this is what we're meant to demonstrate to the world. We're meant to show the world that we love. We're called to love one another, to even love our enemies as we love ourselves. When Paul was transformed, what happened was the hatred gave way to love in his life so that he could go on to write passages like 1 Corinthians 13, right? That love is patient and love is kind. And and if I don't have love, I am nothing. Transformation in the world and in our lives, healing in the broken places in this world, happens when we remember that we are called to love. And when we experience love and express love, this is how the world changes. And this is what Jesus showed us when he hung on a cross. He demonstrated that selfless, sacrificial love. And that love changes our lives. I wanna give an invitation for you. I wanna invite you, if you are walking in the darkness, if you found yourself in a really dark place, or maybe you've wandered away from God for a long time, and, and, and inside you might believe with your head, but maybe you haven't done anything with your heart, I want to invite you to be converted today. I want to invite you to experience that confirmation, that that conversion. The Apostle Paul says this, if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Everything old has passed away. See, everything has become new. I want that to be true for you. And so if you're watching today online, on TV, if you're in one of our locations, if you're in the foundry, I want to invite you to simply say, have I surrendered my life to Christ? Have I actually accepted his love? You see, the apostle Paul had spent his entire life following God as he thought he was following God. He knew the law. He understood the law of Moses, but it wasn't here. He'd missed the point. I want to ask if you missed the point or were you allowed allowed Christ to come in? And for Paul, it was the Holy Spirit came in. He finally, and as Ananias came, he finally trusted in Christ. The Holy Spirit filled him and he was baptized and made new. I'd like to invite you today to put your trust in Christ. And to say, Lord, I'm yours. I trust in you. I want to follow you. I want to be your disciple. And, and, and knowing that there are many of you who have already done that, and on a daily basis, we surrender our lives to Christ, I want to just ask us, how are we doing at loving people? How are we doing at expressing? How are we doing at being Ananias for somebody else where we actually are willing to share our faith with someone, that we're willing to express God's love to them, and, and that we're willing to say, do you want to join me at church? Or, or can I tell you about who Jesus is to me? because that's how the world has changed. Without Ananias, Paul would have never been changed. Without Paul not being changed, the gospel wouldn't have been spread around the world because there was an Ananias willing to have the courage to share his faith with someone else. So again, my invitation for you, if you've not said yes to Christ, to say yes to him today, this day, to say, Lord, I wanna follow you. I need you. I wanna be your disciple. And if you are a disciple of Jesus, I wanna invite you to remember we are called to love not assassinate people's characters, not to, not to do anything that's inconsistent with love. Even in the midst of politics, that we live a life of love, we can have strong disagreements about how we see issues, but we are called to love. And love is what changes things as people encounter the love and light of Christ in us. I wanna invite us, if you're already a Christian, to say, Lord, please help me to love others well. Can we pray that today as we offer our lives to Christ? Would you bow in prayer with me? Lord, how grateful we are to you for your love, grace, and mercy. How grateful that you see a man like Paul who was ushering murderous threats and and, and torturing your people, and yet you still had mercy for him. And if you had mercy for him, you can have mercy for us and all the things that we've done where we've messed up. 
And I'd like to invite you, whoever you are, wherever you are, I'd like to invite you, if you have yet to say yes to Christ, why don't you do that today? Why don't you simply say, Jesus, I put my trust in you. I want to follow you. I offer my life to you. Fill me with your Holy Spirit and help me to live as your follower. And for all of us who are already Christians, would you just simply whisper this prayer? Lord, help me to live a life of love. Help me to be patient and kind. And help me have the courage of Ananias and the courage of those Muslims in Muncie, Indiana to love the stranger and the people we're fearful of. Lord, bless these your, these your people watching online, TV, at all of our locations and draw us near to you. And may our community be one like that Islamic community in Muncie, Indiana, where people's lives are changed because they encounter love through us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for watching this week's sermon. We'd love for you to join us again for live worship online or in person. To learn more about Church of the Resurrection, please visit core.org. Have a great week and we'll see you next time.